Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Matthew Epinet, Interim Director of the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we have a presentation by Dr. Christine Taves on the ethics of emergency consent research. We'll get to that in a minute, but first, I want to provide a couple of pieces of background and context. As some may remember, I started the Bioethics Podcast way back in 2006 during my first tenure here at CBHD. I've been back since September of 2019, and the CBHD team has been working to bring the podcast back, revitalized and re-energized for some time. And now, here we are. I'm recording this on March 19, 2020, during the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic. The situation is, at present, developing very quickly and filled with uncertainty. This pandemic, like any, touches on a number of areas of bioethics, triage, quarantine, disaster ethics, research ethics, and possibly things related to rationing, end-of-life care, and end-of-life decision-making, and many others. As a bioethics research center, we're working to develop new resources that will address the coronavirus COVID pandemic directly. But in the meantime, we want to highlight a few items from our archives that are broadly applicable to the present situation. One of our aims in this is to take a step back or maybe a step to the side and reflect on some of the larger themes that arise in a time of pandemic. For this episode, we have a parallel paper that was presented in 2015 as part of our conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics. The paper is entitled The Ethics of Emergency Consent Research, and it was given by Dr. Christine Taves. She's a trauma surgeon presently practicing in Indiana, but as you'll hear in the presentation, she was practicing in Pittsburgh in 2015 when the presentation was given. In it, she discusses a brief history of the ethics of human subject research, which is marked by a number of significant ethical failures. She then turns to look at research related to severe trauma that was underway in 2015. She raises a number of ethical issues that need to be considered as part of any research project involving human subjects in times where their ability to consent is greatly reduced, if not eliminated, due to the pressing severity of their condition. I hope you find that this presentation helps to stimulate your thinking about issues that might arise in the context of the current pandemic as trials of various therapies and potential vaccines press forward. Here is Dr. Taves on the ethics of emergency consent research. Uh, So those who haven't heard me speak before, my name is Christine Taves. I am a trauma surgeon, uh, and with all that comes with being a trauma surgeon, including the ability to speak loudly, Uh, I also have a particular interest in end-of-life issues and went and got a master's in bioethics, and I also have board certification in hospice and palliative medicine. Uh, As my husband says, I'm a little more overqualified, and I've started talking about maybe getting an MBA, if for no other reason than to poke him. (laughs) He's like, really, another degree? And I'm like, well, you know, I kind of get bored after a while. I need a little something to do. So anyway, I want to talk today a little bit about ethics of emergency consent research. And to do that, we need to talk a little bit about the history of research. And we're talking research on human subjects, obviously, and emergency consent. And so since the beginning of time, we have been doing things to human beings without their consent. And there's been a large number of documented studies, everything from within institutions, outside of institutions, people signing up for things that they thought that they were signing up for and getting something entirely different. 
And so we started this and well documented, at least in terms of current history, in terms of the 1800s. As a consequence, as you guys know, the Nazis were sort of the big ones that brought most of this to the forefront in terms of what was being done. And if any of you remember during the 80s and 90s, the massive amount of discussion that occurred in the ethics literature about whether or not to actually use any of the research that they had done, which fortunately they determined, or unfortunately, depending upon how you look at it, wasn't done correctly and added nothing to the scientific knowledge anyway, so that all went away. But, but you know, we immersed prisoners in Cold War, we used high-altitude chambers, we used typhus, and then ultimately we had the medical trials in 46 and 47, which went after 20 physicians, 23 defendants, and convicted 15 of them. I'm unclear why all of them were not convicted based upon the research that they had done. As a consequence, the Nuremberg Code came out, which came out with 10 rules. And we all know we write rules, people follow them. That's right. That's why there's 50,000 pages a year in the Federal Register of all the things we're supposed to follow. And we all keep up with everything we're supposed to follow. So we're going to write another set of rules after World War II, and that's going to make things all better, and people are going to behave ethically, and they're going to do what they're supposed to do. And so they determined that in order to do this, you needed voluntary consent, good science, potential benefits, minimize the harms. The degree of risk had to be less than the potential benefit, and subjects could end their participation and they could terminate the study, of course, none of which happened in the world of the Nazis or for any of the unethical research that had occurred up to that point. And so then they also said that this could apply only in certain situations, and they began to look at when is research actually criminal, and when do, are we not doing this correctly, and when do we need more guidelines. So after World War II, now that we have the Nuremberg Code, everybody's going to behave, right? Okay. So then we did the radiation experiments for many, many, many years, and I would encourage you, if you have any interest in this, to look at the source of all knowledge, which is not the Bible that's sitting here according to Wikipedia, but I would encourage you to look at Wikipedia, which actually has a pretty phenomenal summary of all the radiation experiments that were done on people, and they're pretty terrifying, actually. Um, and we went even further, even despite all of these codes and regulations, we went and infected uh, disabled children with hepatitis, we went through the institutions again, and we started doing more of this. The expectation was that since we were Americans, we were doing it, it was okay, as opposed to the rest of the world. Really tragic, actually. So we come out with more regulations. So in 1964, we come out with the Declaration of Helsinki with seven revisions about how we're going to respect the individual and how we're going to do this, because now that we've written it on paper, everybody's going to behave again. And we're going to look at informed decisions and the investigator's duty to the patient and the subject's welfare should come first, and that you have to be very careful with vulnerable populations. So Henry Beecher in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1966 looked at research up to date and whether or not with all the new regulations we had actually been following them and guess what, or not. So out of all the research that had been published, they had 22 recent unethical medical experiments at major medical centers with prominent researchers, most of them funded and most of them published in prestigious journals. So despite all of these regulations, multiple codes that had come out, people still weren't following them, and they were getting funding and published for this unethical research. And ethical problems remained mainstream. And you guys all remember this, right? It's interesting. This is really a fascinating study if you look at the details of how this happened. So 600 African-American men in Tuskegee, Alabama, the researchers flat out lied and coerced. 
and they promised them free health care, and they promised them that they were getting better. And the ones that actually sought medical treatment outside of Tuskegee and were told to get penicillin went back to the researchers, and the researchers said, no, you don't need that. Um, so it really was catastrophically bad. And as a consequence, they had a tiny dropout rate because they went for very poor people who truly couldn't afford money to go anywhere else and to get opinions from anywhere else. So, and part of it is they paid for the funeral, they offered free medical care, and then we published this, and we published it every five years up through 1972. And even in the 60s when objections were raised about this being pretty substantially unethical, it still continued, and it continued with federal funding. And remember, the feds are the ones that keep coming up with all these regulations about what we're supposed to do, and this was all federally funded. So the solution, of course, is more regulations. So we're going to write a whole bunch more regulations. And so there's a whole list of them, and I just list them here for you to, just so that you get an idea of the solution to everything clearly is not more regulations. I would argue the solution to everything is this, um, but they don't use this in the court system apparently, so that doesn't quite work either. So nonetheless, they came up with a whole series of more regulations and even more regulations. And these continue to be updated and changed and updated and re-emphasis and emphasis on research and people have IRBs and they're told to go before the IRBs and you're told to do this to the point that those of us who try to do what I consider to be ethical research, I'll give you an example. I mean, really, I'm going to look through my trauma registry, which is mandated through the state, and I'm going to look at the number of stub toe injuries the amount of paperwork that I have to gather to just look at the number of stub toes, which I'm already, the data I'm already gathering because I'm mandated by federal and state law to gather, to actually look at that data, to look at the number of stub toes that we've had. It, the paperwork's hundreds of pages and I have to go before committee. So those of us who do the right thing are very much punished in order to try to prevent those who are doing unethical things from continuing to do unethical things. And then there's the therapeutic misconception, which says, if I sign up for a research study, it is going to benefit me. There was an article this week in the New York Times. A patient wrote in about how tragic it is that nobody shows up for clinical trials, that only 3% sign up for clinical trials. The cancer trials are having a great deal of difficulty enrolling people. And then he sits there and he concludes, well, of course I would sign up for this trial because I'm going to get a benefit. Well, okay, well, I mean, you suffer from therapeutic misconception, which is you think you're going to get a benefit. It may not actually benefit you. It may only benefit the people who come after you. And so there's this misconception that says if I do sign up for research, that I will get a benefit from it, and you may actually not. So because of all these new regulations and because of the IRB and because this is all on the front page of the newspapers every day, people behave, right? Not so clearly. So in 2012... Two neurosurgeons, both the chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery as well as another neurosurgeon who worked in the state of California who was not actually licensed but had a special permit, took patients with brain tumors and injected poop. And the thought was that by injecting the bacteria that are found in poop, you could create an, a local immunological response and you could cure the tumor. Anybody want to guess if they had IRB approval to do so? Uh, the answer to that would be no. Uh, and they didn't go down that route because they used the argument that this wasn't research, this was treatment. Two of the patients died, huge, huge investigation, and this was actually all over the news, too. This was pretty fascinating. Apparently, we can inject poop in patients' brains, and that will make them all better. You guys all remember this, right? 
If you're signed up on Facebook, I can guarantee Facebook is manipulating your Facebook page to control your emotions and what you post on Facebook. And it's been proven. So Facebook took 700,000 people's websites and they took everything that you see, saw on your Facebook website and they either made it positive or negative and they watched what you posted in response to what was on your website. So they were manipulating your emotions to see if they could control what you posted on the website. You think they got IRB approval for it? And of course not. And actually, not only was this published, I mean, this was published, uh, it was done by several researchers at several universities who helped control Facebook do this. So they knew better. And yet they still manipulated 700,000 people. And Facebook's response was, you signed up for Facebook, we can do whatever we want. And that really is was their response. That's the cartoon. And the whole argument of we've done it before, therefore it should be ethical and we can do whatever we want. And of course that's ethical because we've been doing it forever because Facebook, believe it or not, has been manipulating what you see on your web page, your Facebook page. Needless to say, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, but nonetheless, um, that's all out there. And then there's this. This, retra this retraction. So it started with the vaccination study, but now there's been a whole boatload of them. The, the whether or not you can change someone's opinion about their perceptions of gays, that's the big one that's come out in the last couple of weeks where they figured out the graduate student manipulated the data. So there's been a piece, again, in the New York Times about the number of scientific studies that have been redacted. Another piece came out that said about 30% of all cancer scientific studies use the same graphs and the same photos in each of their papers. Yeah, exactly. So clearly we're not doing something well despite all of these regulations. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about emergency consent research because clearly what I do, I mean, you come in, you come in an extremist, you're on a ventilator, the EMS has brought you in, you're dying, and we're gonna do what we can to save your life. Okay. Now, at some point in time, we have to begin to say, what do we do in order to save your life, and how do we look at that, and how do we do research on that, and how do we investigate that, and how do we do that safely and ethically? Okay. And I'm not sure that there's any good answers, and if you want the answer for how to do it, I'm not sure I have that for you today, but I want to talk about some of the things that were done. Bob Orr was involved in this in terms of getting this shut down. This was pretty amazing. So polyheme came out was a blood substitute. We all know blood is good if you're bleeding to death. Blood is not necessarily so good if you're in an ICU and a bunch of other situations, but if you're bleeding to death, you need blood to stay alive. But blood is hard to keep, it's hard to preserve, it's hard to use, uh, it outdates quickly. So they came up with a blood substitute called polyheme. And the goal was to use it in pre-hospital transport. And then once you got to the hospital, you would go back to regular blood and you would use the standard of care, which is packed red blood cells that somebody donated at the Red Cross or another facility. The problem was that wasn't how the trial was designed. The trial was designed that once you hit the emergency department, you still continue to receive, excuse me, the polyheme or the blood substitute for another 12 hours. 
And that's where Bob Orr got involved. They looked at doing it in Vermont, and he said flat out, no, this is unethical. It's okay to do it in a pre-hospital setting, but once you get to the hospital, the standard of care is a unit of blood, and you're not doing that. So the people wrote in defense of this. The people who did this research said this is completely defensible, and this is why it is completely defensible. Um, first off, they did a fairly extensive communication, and I want you to pay attention to this communication because it makes a difference for uh, one of my later slides. But what you did was you could opt out. So it's an automatic opt-in. You're bleeding to death. You're going to be enrolled in the polyheme trial. Okay, so it's an automatic opt-in type phenomenon, but they did a huge public awareness campaign. Nine newspapers, 41 non-daily newspapers, radio stations, internet, community group hearings, radio call-in shows. I mean, so they really did a pretty good public awareness. Even those of us uh, that were in institutions that were not enrolled in the polyheme trial knew about it. I mean, they, they really did a pretty good job in terms of that. But their response was, we want people to live, so how can you argue against this research? We know it's good. We're just going to prove it's good. So, of course, you're going to sign on for it. So how can caring and informed individuals disagree? And really, I mean, let's face it, is packed red blood cells proven to be effective? Um, the answer to that would be yes. Uh, and, of course, it is, and that's been the standard of care for a very long time. We all understand. But their argument was, well, we haven't proven that red cells are beneficial, so what difference does it make if we use a blood substitute? And by definition, polyheme is good, therefore the research used to prove it would be good. And, in fact, they even argued in their article that, that polyheme was superior to blood. Mm, probably not. So they published a study in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons in 2009 that said the mortality was the same. Whether you got polyheme or you got blood, the mortality was the same. You bleed to death, it's probably a bad thing. And as a consequence, the company that designed this lost about $220 million. And this really brought emergency consent ethics to the forefront. So there's a fair amount of emergency consent ethics that goes on, especially when you talk about stroke and you talk about TXA, um, thrombolytic type treatment. Uh, and a variety of other conditions. Obviously, the ones that I care about are related to trauma, but this really came on my radar a couple of years ago when the hospital across the river from me in Pittsburgh, UPMC, signed on with the Department of Defense to do uh, a suspended animation trial. So if you're shot and you come in in near arrest, they are literally going to suspend and animate you. They're going to drain all of your blood. They're effectively going to put you on ECMO, which is cardiopulmonary bypass like they use when you're on a uh, heart-lung machine, heart-lung machine type procedure when you go to have heart surgery. So they're going to put you on ECMO, and they're going to flush your entire body with saline to allow them time to fix all the holes, and then they'll put the blood back in or put new blood back in. But basically, it's a suspended animation trial. Okay. So, who is this experiment going to be on? It's going to be on gunshot victims. Okay, so who gets shot in Pittsburgh? Well, 83% of them are African-American males. Okay, so that creates a problem right then and there. So what they did for community notification was they did an Internet page. Well, I just went back out to check the Internet page. It's not on the UPMC website. It's actually called Acute... Acute Care Research, 
org and it lists all the emergency. It doesn't even mention UPMC. So if you type in UPMC suspended animation, you can't pull up the website to opt out. If you go to UPMC, you can't pull up the website to opt out. So I'm not sure exactly how you're supposed to know where you go to get to the web page to opt out. They did a phone survey. They did two open meetings on campus. Now, UPMC is an incredibly, the University of Pittsburgh is an incredibly expensive college. There are many there in Pittsburgh who do not have the money and the resources in order to go to this college. So do we think a campus community meeting is going to be one that's going to reach this patient population that's going to undergo this procedure? They advertised on buses and they did newspaper. Now, be honest, when was the last time you read a newspaper as we think about a newspaper? Yeah, okay. When was the last time you read local news online and actually looked at everything? Yeah, not too much. Okay, so how would you even be reached? I, I knew about it because, I mean, I live in the city, but if you don't live in the city, how would you know about this? So so I knew the guy who was running the trial, so I had coffee with him. And I said, I absolutely don't want to be in this trial. But I don't know how to get to the web page. I don't know how to do anything. So you know what happens. It requires that I write a letter to them. And then it requires that I wear this handy-dandy bracelet 24-7 in order to not be in this trial so I don't undergo suspended animation. So I will pass this around for anybody who wants to look at it. So I get to wear a handy-dandy bracelet that says, I don't want to be in this trial and I don't want you to suspend and animate me. Now let's face it, realistically, am I likely to get shot in Pittsburgh? The answer is no, probably not, except this is my house. And I have been shot. Not me, but the house was shot. And that's halfway across my living room. Uh, I chose to live in the city, and so, I mean, it could happen. It's not very likely. I'm not quite the patient population that they're looking for. But remember, this entire trial is funded by the DOD. And its main purpose is to affect and to save the lives of those on the military field. But we do this type of research not actually within the military. They pair with universities to do so. So it turns out UPMC is doing three of these. And so if you go to acute care research, so they're doing a TXA during transport. We use TXA all the time in the trauma bays, standard treatment to try to help with blood clots and those types of things. And they want to actually, it's trans ischemic acid. It allow, it prevents the breakdown of clot. And we really need people who are bleeding to death to make clot and keep making clot. So we use this in the operating room. It's used routinely in heart surgery. It's a well-known drug. Side effects aren't very much, but they're doing a pre-hospital trial. I can opt out of that one also, and I will get another bracelet for it. And then they're doing another trial of plasma during transport. Now, we use plasma all the time. You hit the emergency department door, you've been shot, you're critically injured, you're spleen. I mean, I hang plasma immediately. I mean, it pretty much is the standard of care. We just don't know the benefit of carrying it around on helicopters. And if we started at the scene, do patients do even better. So they're doing one of those trials, and if you want to opt out of that too, they'll be happy to send you another bracelet. So you in Pittsburgh can walk around with your three bracelets. Now, what if you don't live in Pittsburgh? Well, you're kind of sort of screwed, and you don't really know that these research projects are going on. You come in through the emergency department, you get injured, you're in a car wreck on one of the major interstates going through Pittsburgh. Guess what? Too bad. Um, and, and let's face it, 
what group of people are we talking about? We're talking about a group of people I think we would all acknowledge over the last six months has become pretty profoundly disenfranchised and disengaged from American society. And we're asking them to read the paper, go out to the Internet, and opt out. And if they opt out, we are asking them to wear three bracelets to do so. Does any of us really think that this is a patient population that has really been given informed consent and a choice? And are we ethically doing research? Now, granted, I, I get it. I get it. Guys are dying on the battlefield every single day. If we can figure out a way to try to stop their bleeding to death from gunshot wounds, I get it. And we can't really set up a suspended animation lab in the middle of the battlefield in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, I get it. I totally understand the intent. The question becomes the logistics and the implementation. And are we really doing this correctly? And with a patient population that is so disenfranchised and so separated from what we are doing in the world and what we're doing in universities, is really an internet page and two campus meetings appropriately notifying people and is an opt-out method completely appropriate for a group like this and if you are going to do this kind of research how do you do it and how do you do it ethically because clearly we have bad science going on every single day and i'll stop there for questions that was Dr. Christine Taves on the Ethics of Emergency Consent Research, a parallel paper from the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity's 2015 conference, Science, Research, and the Limits of Bioethics. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and is copyrighted 2020, all rights reserved. My name is Matthew Epinet. I'm the Interim Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.